0: Chris O'Connor here. Join the Curmudgeon Rock Report's invite-only curmudgeonly community at facebook.com slash curmudgeonrock. Also look out for a Spotify playlist that pays honor to this episode.
1: This is the Curmudgeon Rock Report and this is your podcast made by rock geek iconoclastic outsiders for rock geek iconoclastic outsiders. For those of you who lament that rock music has gone the way of jazz and slipped into niche genre status, we are here to keep that flame alive by providing insight, analysis, recommendations, and honest takes, not hot takes. And hey, there's a good chance you'll learn some rock history you never knew before. So, here's where we're at. In our last episode... We started our examination of the Grateful Dead's incredible, and frankly underrated, studio discography by focusing on their Warner Brothers years, essentially the years spanning 1967 to 1970. While some of those records stand to this day as some of the best rock albums of all time, the decade of the 1970s saw the Dead explore a variety of styles, sounds, and even genres one would not associate with the band. With their dedicated fandom of deadheads growing to numbers and levels of obsession previously unheard of for a cult rock band, the band's sound had to expand in proportion to the sports arenas and large open-air settings they were now playing in. And the studio albums they put out in this period surely did not disappoint in that regard. Some of the band's most enduringly popular, influential, and classic songs came from the period of 1973 to 1980, and it's about time a music podcast shined a light on this material. Welcome to the second of our two-part retrospective, The Grateful Dead in the Studio, A Legacy.
0: So, yeah, uh, we determined the original idea for this episode uh, wouldn't fly uh, in defense of R. Kelly. Uh, <laughs> no, no, that just, that just wasn't going to fly. So, uh,
1: so we went
0: with uh, artists that are much nearer and much dearer to our hearts, uh, namely fish. So uh, with that, Arturo, how's everything going in Gwangju, South Korea?
1: And fish are not going to prison for like what? How many how many years does R. Kelly have now uh, attacked tacked on to his sentence?
0: Uh, at least thirty. Um, Jeez, <laughs> and he just got convicted of the other stuff in Chicago. So let's see what gets added to it. Uh, yeah, and I let, let's not get into the details, folks. But let's just say that, that that was not that was my least favorite read of the entire year. Uh, in doing that, oh, okay. Anyway, yeah. let, let us let us focus on something much more positive and much more fun, uh, right. namely uh, Verm- Vermont's finest uh, import uh, fish. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, relevant to guys like us.
1: Oh, totally sure. relevant. And uh, and I like to say that this episode that we're about to embark on, uh, I alluded to it a little bit in the in our parameter setter for this episode. But uh, this is a really personal episode for us, for the two of us. Yours truly, curmudgeons. Because uh, Chris and I were both in college in Syracuse, New York, from 1993 to 1997. And that period came right smack in the middle of Fish's golden period, their golden era, which is basically from the late 1980s until 2000, when they went on hiatus. And it's really, uh, we really have to stress how important Fish was to the soundtrack of our college years. They made up a huge portion of that soundtrack to our college years. Chris had Pearl Jam and Neil Young. Uh, me, I had a little bit of that too, but I also got into hip hop with Public Enemy and A Tribe Called Quest and the Beastie Boys. But Fish was a huge part. And we both got into Fish at the same time. They were blowing up. In exactly that period. And for that 93 to 97 period, they were becoming one of the biggest bands in America. And being in a Northeastern college in the early to mid 1990s, it's really hard for listeners who weren't there at that time to understand what a phenomenon fish were becoming for in this period 92 93 all the way into the late 90s they really were a phenomenon that like, that people that just took people by surprise no one saw this band of all bands being the like underground uh, cult band of the decade and uh, being in Syracuse New York Uh, where a lot of people from the Northeast were not only living there, but going to school there. And fish were just flowering and they were just taking over. And it really was something back in the 90s to be privy and seeing this culture, the fish head culture grow during this time period. And Chris and I were just, you and I were just, you know, swept into it. Sure. Yeah. Period.
0: Yeah. We were a couple of impressionable 18 year old kids that were, uh, learning to absorb, uh, the vast, uh, sort of catalog that, uh, yeah. you know, forms this, uh, podcast in our, uh, uh, mid forties. A couple of, uh, uh, things related to, to what you said, uh, Hoist by Fish, mm-hmm. which we'll talk about was probably the album that got me out of the post Kurt Cobain suicide, uh, funk. Right because it came out or down with Disease, at least hit the radio about the same time or a couple yeah. of weeks uh, later it was before, uh, freshman year, uh, ended. And so, uh, so that was, that was pretty special. And, uh, one thing to understand folks too, is that Syracuse, New York, uh, was part of that Northeast touring corridor, uh, yeah. that really helped the, uh, the leaders of that jam band scene, uh. Tone, uh, tune, uh, fine-tune their uh, their sound, and gain their confidence uh, as live bands. Uh, uh, for instance, Fish wasn't on the bill, but on the initial uh, six-date horde tour in 1992, Syracuse was a stop yeah. uh, along that tour. So, the context of being in that city and that there was a music scene in in Syracuse, a little bit of one, but being in that city at that time uh, with that band and a couple of others uh, was pretty special.
1: Yeah. um, I mean, I didn't see Fish live until several years later, but you saw them at the absolute peak of their superpowers. (laughs) Oh, absolutely.
0: And we'll talk about a little bit about that, uh, you know, in segment, uh, the first uh, segment dedicated to the band. But yeah, my first show was in July of 1994, uh, in Saratoga, New York, at what they call SPAC, uh, the Saratoga Performance, uh, Performing Arts Center. Um, special experience. Uh, so that's, uh, that's what I'll say. You know what else is a special experience? What? Passing over into the... Parallel Universe.
1: Oh, nice segue.
0: <laughs> yeah, here, here, here we are uh, over on this side of the space-time continuum again. Uh, it's over here that we prop up the artists that we think ought to be uh, propped up and celebrated and on those billboards and uh, getting those uh, millions and millions and millions of uh, streams uh, online. Uh, I saw an interview with Ben Gibbard of Death Cab for Cutie uh, yeah. this week. Where he was uh, not really lamenting, but more or less bitching and and being angry about the streaming economy where uh, Tyler, T- Tyler, Taylor Swift uh, mm-hmm. and a couple of those can make much, 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 much more money uh, based on their accounting stats uh, from uh, streaming and where Death Cab really has to scrap and claw and kind of rely on their quote unquote cult and the road uh, to get yeah. there. So. Uh, On this side, not to say Death Cab for Cutie is still on a pedestal on this side. If you'd have talked to me 20 years ago, uh, yes, uh, not anymore. So anyway, uh, on to the artists that we are propping up in the parallel universe. Uh, And uh, within this segment, we cover albums either uh, newly and freshly released or released within the last uh, 10 years. In that latter category, we uh, dive into our parallel vault Uh, So uh, we generally grab from that. So uh, this week, uh, or at least on this episode, Arturo, uh, who you got?
1: Yes. In a parallel universe where rock music is still a pop cultural mainstream thing, this punk rock band would be huge and they would be the breakout stars of 2022. Who are they? I'll tell you who they are. For almost the past 10 years, Australia has been producing arguably the best rock and roll music on the planet. From Courtney Barnett to Amel and the Sniffers to sometimes King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard, (laughs) the Aussies (laughs) have been making rock music that at once harkens back to tradition, while also showing the way forward for the overall genre. The latest band to prove this to be true is Queensland, Australia natives, The Chats and their follow-up to their excellent 2020 debut, High Risk Behavior. Now, that debut album became both a critical and commercial sensation Down Under, nowhere else, really, (laughs) uh, uh, with their fun, funny, raw, raunchy brand of punk rock, owing more to the hard-nosed, no-bullshit 1970s punk sound, more so than Green Day-ish pop punk. The new album that came out this year, the excellently titled Get Fucked, (laughs) has a nastier, heavier, hardcore punk edge to it. It's as if the boys have graduated from the Damned and the Saints, another great Australian band, to Minor Threat and early Husker Du. A lot of this has to do with the band's change in guitarists. Original guitarist Josh Price has been replaced by Josh Hardy and not only is the guitar sound thicker and heavier Hardy is technically a better player and, and oh, much yeah. better oh, yeah. much much better suited to providing the shredding solos and alternating subtle textures that this music requires the singles 61 GTR and struck by lightning are turbocharged blasts of punk rock fury but other brilliant nuggets abound such as panic attack and the brilliantly titled i've been drunk in every pub in brisbane uh <laughs> dis- despite the chat's dumb mookish reputation insightful lyrical themes of social commentary tend to pop up in their records even in their first one on get fucked the running theme that emerges is that of the correlation between macho behavior and insecurity. Ticket Inspector explo- explores how low-wage jobs given to under- undereducated insecure types tends to bring out a false sense of empowerment and an overall power trip. Emperor of the Beach follows a similar lyrically thematic line, with a character study of a white trash, meat-headed thug who carves out, carves out his quote-unquote turf in a beach town and threatens anyone who challenges him. To paraphrase Mark Deming in his positive review of the album on allmusic.com, there's a reason this kind of punk rock still exists and hasn't gone away. When it's done with the right kind of energy and the right kind of songwriting, it's unbeatable. It's more punk rock than anything Green Day ever has or was. And that's me saying that, by the way. Mm. (laughs) The heavier, faster sound of the new material may put off fans of the naive, childish ruckus of their first album. But it really shouldn't. The chats are quickly evolving into one of the best rock bands on the planet, let alone Australia. And if you don't like the sound of that, then you can all go get fucked.
0: Nice. Uh, yeah, uh, you, you pretty much uh, nailed it. Uh, this is uh, one of the more surprising uh, listens that I've uh, undertaken in the last uh, several years. Uh, really strong. I mean, I like your uh, description. Of the first record uh, as uh, childish and naive uh, yeah. because it it kind of was uh, it was fun but you know uh, songs like the clap and dine and dash uh, yeah <laughs> uh, you know they yeah you know, that basically it was uh, their life on the ground as you know, what are they like twenty years old or something yeah uh, and so there was that but here is a uh, very pleasantly surprising uh, graduation into a little bit more sophistication, uh, more energy and the change of guitarists, uh, is makes a world uh, of difference. And so, you know, mostly the cuteness is gone. Uh, I mean, granted the best song on here, I, you mentioned is I've been drunk in every pub in Brisbane, but, (laughs) but, but hell, uh, ACDC could bask, uh, in that one, uh, with a lot of credibility as well. They've probably been drunk in every, every pub in all of Australia. Uh, so yeah, the riffs here have more of an anarchic, uh, feel, uh, the singing is more unhinged, uh, the singing, the soloing, it's all uh, relentless here. Uh, it's my kind of economy, 13 songs, 27 minutes. And it's in a, in a way it's like one long song. (laughs) <laughs> uh, which could be bad, but also very good. Let's uh, segue into what I'm covering uh, this this week. So,
1: yeah, and and I would like to say the band you're going into, Built to Spill, one of this podcast's favorite groups. How do they fit into the parallel universe easily? In a parallel universe where rock music were still a thing, Built to Spill would be an arena rock institution, uh, the, the likes of the Foo Fighters, and it would be Doug Marsh in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, not Dave Grohl.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, in, in a lot of ways, you're right. Uh, Doug, Marsh is, uh, Doug March is a uh, guitar, heroes, uh, hero, guitar hero. Uh, literally, uh, what's his name there? Al- Albert Hammond Jr. from The Strokes had an interview yeah. where he said that the uh, opening riff and uh, arpeggio to uh, Going Against Your Mind from uh, 2006 Universe was one of the best things he had ever heard. Yeah. So. There you go. Uh, So he gets his props from musicians, maybe not so much from buyers. Uh, I guess uh, proof in the pudding in that is that uh, their new record, uh, When the Wind Forgets Your Name, is being released on Sub Pop. They they were on, I believe it was Warner Brothers for uh, 26, well, 25 years uh, roughly. So this is their first uh, foray into indie, uh, literally since uh, uh, the masterwork from 1994. There's nothing wrong with love. Uh, You mentioned it. This is... uh, both the spell is kind of the resonant house band of the curmudgeon rock report. We both love them. Uh, now this album, when the wind forgets your name, it's their first album in seven years. Uh, and it is easily, easily, uh, the band's best record since uh, I just mentioned it, 2006 is you in reverse. And it may be better, uh, certainly tighter, uh, but it may also be better. Not ready to make that declaration need a few more listens, but, uh, anyway, uh, so to set this up a little bit, uh, there's an interview, uh, KEXP, which is probably the greatest rock station or uh, rock and roll station left, uh, in the U S out of Seattle. Uh, they have these wonderful, uh, they put them on video, but they have these wonderful live and studio performances and they bring in bands, you know, cool bands, old bands, new bands. And they do like a half hour segment with an interview by DJ Cheryl waters. Uh, Built to Spell just did one of those a uh, couple months back or, or just before uh, the release of this record. So I imagine it was probably five or six weeks ago now. Mm-hmm. And uh, March in that interview says that this record, uh, again, When the Wind, forgets Your Name, uh, was basically recovered in isolation because of COVID. Um, the drummer and bassist uh, for this record, who we'll talk about here uh, in a bit, uh, they worked in isolation in Brazil uh, they had, uh, toured, uh, they had backed, uh, March briefly on some touring in, uh, 2019. And, uh, I think part of right before, uh, COVID in 2020. Uh, and so they basically, it was, uh, tape trading <laughs> if you want, they were just kind of, you know, uh, March was doing his thing and feeding those guys for their tracks and, and they honed it, uh, from there. And I, and so March says that, uh, here, and I think you can tell, that the isolation of that situation and at what it forced it it seeps into this record in both joyful and uh, downtrodden ways, uh, thematically, and maybe you'll disagree with me Arthur, but I think this is arguably an exact counter to there's nothing wrong with love, which, Mm -hmm. you know, effectively put BTS on the map 28 years ago. Yeah. These guys have been around for a long time. Uh, then, uh, the mid twenties version of duck March could look to the sky and dream of all the possibilities and the expanse of the universe. Uh, he did that figuratively on Car and Reasons, and literally on Big Dipper. Uh, so uh, here's here's a contrast to where he is. So now in his early fifties, it looks like March is looking up there in the sky, and he sees a whole lot of uh, resignation and empty space. Hmm. Uh, you know, he's he's there as an old man. And Weathered Man, and instead of a bright eyed kid, because uh, you know that record was part you know, teenage nostalgia and part here I am in my, my mid 20s, and the world is my oyster. So let's do some lyrical contrast. So, uh, Big Dipper, uh, once when I was a little something, uh, when I was a little, someone pointed out to me some constellations, uh, but the Big Dipper's all I could see. That brontosaurus must have stood a thousand miles high, that brontosaurus laying on its side up in the sky. Now, contrast that with words or lyrics from the uh, banging uh, album opener here, Gonna Lose, uh, his best riff in a long time. And uh, that goes, I've come to realize time is all wrong. Answers materialize and then they're gone. They were here, but the ones like that disappear and they don't come back. Jeesh. So you'd think with that evident mood, uh, this would drive a downbeat record. Far, far, far from it. Uh, this album is an intense and at times dreamlike romp uh, featuring uh, March's most purposeful singing and soloing in ages and some really inspired groups. Uh, groups. I mean, On Tethered Moon, uh, which was the 2015 record that uh, preceded, uh, preceded this one, with the exception of Master Blaster Living Zoo, uh, March sounded bored and defeated and boy did it show. Uh, that yeah. album is terrible. But now, uh, uh, you, when you watch that K-E-X-P, uh, thing it's available on YouTube, uh, go watch it, uh, March kind of, he kind of plays to his shoulder shrugging, unassuming persona, and, uh, he tells, uh, Cheryl Waters that the, album, eh, it was what it was, and, yeah, you know, I needed to get it done, yeah, and he does that, well, you know, if this is what it was, uh, March and his collaborators were in quite a good place, uh. March actually allows himself to experiment more than he has in 25 years. Talking, of course, there about 1997's remarkable prog rock inspired masterwork, Perfect From Now On, uh, which I actually still listen to uh, once a month in my car. Wow. Uh, Now, maybe that new found or rediscovered experimentation comes from his status as the only guitarist in the band now. Uh, There's no more accompanying wackiness from the brilliant uh, coupling of Jim Roth and Brett Netson. And so March is kind of on his own here. I mean, literally there's three, I think for the first time ever, there's only three musicians on a built-to-spell record. And if there was only three, you'd have to go back like 30 years uh, to find that. And so, uh, so, but being on his own, you get this uh, kind of freedom. And so, uh, March at times, he drowns his vocals, actually all throughout the record, he drowns his vocals and occasionally in his, his guitar parts in a cool, but weird warbling psychedelic echo. Uh, it's pretty unique. And, uh, this lends itself well to both his more traditional dinosaur junior approaching rockers, like the uh, tremendous spider web, uh, which is a reverently late eighties style, uh, stomp rock nugget with March's best lead lines and soloing in ages. Uh, it's, the guitar work on that song is remarkable. Uh, and that uh, echo especially lifts the more elongated trips uh, through the looking glass. Uh, concerning the latter there, uh, Doug is a well-known fan of reggae, uh, something he's only offered hints of in the past, uh, such on such as on uh, Time Trap from Keep It Like a Secret and Conventional Wisdom from You UN Universe. But here, with the song Rock Steady, he goes full-blown dub reggae, even naming the song Rock Steady. Which is actually a genre uh, within dub reggae, a subgenre of dub reggae. And this is actually a wonderful thing uh, syncopated drum beats, rhythm guitar, exotic acid wash percussion, and some fun, spooky organ uh, mixed in. Uh, great song. Uh, as it turns out, uh, March can't really take full credit for his re embrace of the weird and for those vocal effects. Uh, I mentioned uh, that rhythm section earlier. Uh, these two guys uh, from Brazil. Uh, I've seen a bunch of lazy reviews of this record so far. The best of these, by the way, is from Stereo Gum. That's a solid one, but still, it does it commits the sin of presenting it as, hey, it's Doug March working with a couple of random dudes from Brazil. Uh, well, now those guys, uh, bassist uh, Jao Casas and uh, drummer and fantastic songwriter arranger Leal Media. And uh, to all you Brazilian listeners, if I mispronounce that, my bad. Um, these guys are members of a marvelously strange little band called Oruia. I believe I pronounced that right. Oruia, O R U uh, A. Go find them; uh, they're on all the streaming services plus uh, YouTube. Uh, that band it demonstrates uh, the influences. It's a very strange mix of acid jazz, like you know, think like you know, uh, uh, Jaco uh, Pastorius uh classic rock and uh you know well built spell uh you got to check out this band's albums uh they're pretty wild and uh, hey that that vocal style the the whole washed in the reverb and vocals thing that makes it hard occasionally to decipher words um that that comes from Aruya, and that's a lay almedia thing and so march is uh, clearly influenced by that and i think even some of the the touches like the song elements has some brazilian uh, touches to it uh and even touches throughout the record, like chimes and organs and uh, uh, some percussive stuff. Uh, that really comes from Leal Media. Uh, that guys uh, he's not a guitar hero, but he's pretty, he's pretty damn good. So uh, thus, it is very, very nice to hear Doug March sound uh, absolutely inspired again. The guitar hero is finally a guitar hero once more. Definitely check out When the Wind Forgets Na- uh, Your Name. Oh, and uh, when you do, be sure to wear headphones. Uh, whoa. What say you, Artie? You
1: know, I, I think it's a really good record. I don't think it's better than 2006's You in Reverse, but it's definitely, the songs aren't quite as individually great, but it is a tighter record. It's really oh, yeah. tight, really concise. Oh, yeah. Nine um, songs,
0: 45 minutes. Yep.
1: I, I think the music critics kind of like overplayed the psychedelic Brazilian sunshine pop angle on the record. There's yeah, only they did. one... There's only one track where that really is prominent, and that's in the song Elements. And of course, Rocksteady is very much a a, a reggae tribute. But aside from that, this is very much a built-to-spill record. Uh, yeah, this yeah. Is, it's really, really – It's I see it as Doug Marsh kind of going back to his – um going back to what Built the Spill is supposed to be. The previous album they did or he did in 2015, it was him trying to do really crappy contemporary indie pop. And it really oh, yeah. just it, oh, it it didn't, suit him, didn't suit him well. But this album is much better. It's different, it's different enough because it has slight psychedelic. It's not over overwhelming, overwhelmingly oh, yeah. psychedelic. It ain't, it ain't Captain Beefheart. Yeah, and, and and it's not perfect from now on. That's a psychedelic record.
0: We're not the only ones in podcast land working hard to defend a legacy of fish. It turns out people quite close to the band are dropping knowledge and talking about their history and legendary output, too. Lyricist Tom Marshall co-produces and hosts Undermine, which just kicked off its fourth season this week. Much like your curmudgeon rock report, find Undermine where you find all of the other podcasts. This season has a pretty cool hook. Marshall and guest hosts will revisit 25 great Fish concerts from the 1990s, all of which they promise will lead to a detailed series of further episodes analyzing Fish's fall 1997 tour. They refer to that tour as, quote, the tour that changed everything. Given Fish's progression as a band during that era, supplying that tour with such a title is perhaps not all that hyperbolic. We definitely are excited to check it out, and you should be too. Again, that's Undermine with an E and Tom Marshall manning the proceedings. Cool.
1: Okay, so before we go into our, well, actually, a big part of our defense of Fish's legacy, defending their legacy, as we do with a lot of def- our defenses, we start off with myths. Okay, five basic myths about fish and we're going to debunk them and we're going to do so vigorously and correctly
0: Uh, yes yes we are okay Okay. sure
1: all right so myth number one about fish that we're going to debunk that they were virtuoso musicians but shitty songwriters now While their early records were full of rhythmically complex jazz infused music with ambitious chord structures that owed a lot to 1970s British progressive rock, they loosened up as they evolved and it didn't take them long to do so. By their third album, A Picture of Nectar in 1992, as we'll delve into later, they were already writing conventional sounding rock songs with strong elements of funk and swinging Latin music. By Rift in 1993, they were writing short, concise songs with thematically coherent and mature lyrics. And they were great songs as well. By 1994's Hoist, an album that will forever go down as one of the all-time top 10 how the fuck was this album not a smash success album? Uh, <laughs> Yeah, they had become genuinely great songwriters, particularly sticking out among... Among their 1990s jam band peers, uh, many of whom wish they could write songs with the hooks and the melodic grace of Fish, Chris.
0: Well, and you got to remember—I mean, this myth gets uh, debunked right off the bat. The first song on Junta from 1988 is "Fee," yeah, which is actually a pretty conventional, pretty, uh, pretty good melodic, uh, condensed, you know, concise relatively speaking song, uh, yeah. about the only concise thing on that record. And then, <laughs> and then actually Fluffhead, which is on uh, disc two actually, uh, ends or actually is, is pretty, uh, joyous and tight, uh, as well. And so, yeah, I know you're right. The, uh, the evolution was, uh, was really, uh, stunning and it was kind of up and down up until they got the hoist that, yeah. uh, lawn boy, uh, wouldn't call that a songwriter's record. It's my favorite of their records, but not really a songwriter's record. And then you get to a picture of Nectar and you get, uh, stuff like stash, which was sophisticated, but very, very strong. And, uh, especially chalk dust torture, which, uh, you know, that riff belongs in uh, the riff hall of fame. Yeah. Uh, yeah, for sure. And then, yeah, I, like you said, by the time they get to hoist, uh, you get down with disease and sample in a jar, which despite it's, you know, silly lyrics from Tom Marshall, uh, stay tuned um, is actually really great. I mean, it's just one of the few instances where the goofball lyrics uh, from those nascent uh, studio days is juxtaposed really with that kind of poppy uh, discipline. And so uh, I've always been a fan of the two point songs I would point to here. And this is pre Billy Breeds, which kind of, you know, stands on its own uh, platform. It's kind of, you know, it's a towering figure uh, in this discography or catalog. Uh, I am a big fan of rifts, uh, songs, uh, the great divide and fast enough for you. Yeah. Um, beautiful ballad. Yeah. Yeah. And a great, the great divide is, is really, really strong. Uh, it's, uh, Uh, It's it's clever. It's it's kind of jazz and it's it's not a soaring riff kind of thing. It's almost like a creeping riff, Mm. Uh, but it's but it's really, really strong. So, yes, uh, they had uh, songwriting chops from the very beginning, Uh, even though Anastasio had, you know, the ambition, uh, you know, for like 50 other ambitions. uh, They they snuck some good stuff
1: in there. Absolutely. More than uh, snuck in. They they pushed it forward. All right. Myth number two. They were nothing more than Grateful Dead imitators. What a bunch yes, of bullshit. I yeah. know. Yes, the Dead were Fish's primary influence, especially in how Fish built their careers in a DIY manner, starting small in the college circuit and little by little building their enthusiastic following until they were selling out arenas without any radio or video support. Okay. And yes, the sweet tones of Jerry Garcia's guitar – were a massive influence on the way Trey Anastasio played. And yes, musically, you can definitely spot the particular mark of the 1970s Dead and Fish's music. But Fish were way, way, way more than that. While the Dead dabbled in funk and jazz, the latter two genres were deeply indebted in Fish's musical DNA since the beginning of their career. Um, the jazz especially pronounced through keyboardist and classically trained Paige McConnell, Anastasio himself has always admitted that the British progressive rock of the 1970s, particularly uh, Peter Gabriel era Genesis, and yes, was his primary influence as a young musician, and you can hear it in Fish's early records. Oh yeah, it's a it's a credit to them that at their best, Fish made those influences listenable and yes, even danceable the complex musical arrangements and wacky, zany humor of Frank Zappa were also big milestones for the band, albeit without Zappa's cynicism and blatantly offensive toilet humor. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jerry Garcia wasn't the only guitarist to influence Anastasio, as the lush, emotional, and evocative tones of Santana were always noticeable as was Santana's Latin jazz rock hybrid infusion that as a group fish would routinely turn back to. Chris?
0: Yeah, uh, that's a great call actually. When I hear stash in my head, yeah. Uh, yeah. that's that's very very Santana, especially the outro. That's yeah. very Santana. Uh, another one that I've always and maybe you know I've never heard Anastasio talk about it, but he also evokes uh, early uh, Dire Straits, uh, mm. Mark Knopfler, yeah, uh, those kind that kind of uh, dexterity. Uh, yeah, uh, this whole you know dead thing. Yes, I mean it. That comes from the similarities in the whole culture and, and yeah. live uh, thing. But yeah, musically, uh, do they touch on the dead? Sure. Uh, you got to remember when, and we mentioned this last episode when uh, The Dead had their 50th anniversary show in Chicago a few years back. Uh, Anastasio played Jerry Garcia and was able to uh, capture uh, Garcia's guitar tones, which is kind of amazing. Uh, but let's go from there. Uh, the Grateful Dead never did anything quite like Reba, for sure, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, from Lawn Boy, which is one of their more fun uh, uh, jammy songs. Uh, that, that goes from funk to almost, like you said, almost like a space rock kind of uh it's still yeah. kind of funky still tight but kind of uh like kind of mellowish uh you know sort of marijuana uh, uh, inspired uh, jam uh and so you know this between the sense of humor and those such as that from that same album split open and melt uh you know dead maybe shake down street but not really uh yeah. so you know they had they had other uh they had other things that uh the dead couldn't really approach. Paige McConnell is really the diff- the main differentiator there. Sure. Uh, because of his his, like you said, he's classically trained pianist. And uh a lot of those early songs uh in mm. those first four or five records feature uh, uh really fun uh winding. They usually last about 90 second, uh piano solos. Mm. Uh kind of in the spirit of the Allman brothers where there were, you know, the, the longer workouts always had an organ uh, solo yeah. by, uh, yeah. by Greg Allman. Uh, but, here but, but,
1: it, but, but, but McConnell's a way better keyboardist than Greg Allman was. Well,
0: yeah. N- well, no shit, uh, but it's, you know, comes, it's like basically from the same, you know, yeah. playbook. but that's not a playbook that um, the dead have never really went into that. I mean, they had, right. you know, they had, you know, a, a pig pen who was a very, uh, much a blues inspired organist uh, especially yeah. on that first record and then they had uh, Keith Gacho who was all over the place. Um, and so you know not quite as uh, you know, not quite as uh, supple right and so there was that and then one last thing uh, I don't think the dead uh, for as whack, for as drugged out and as for zany as they were I don't know if they could ever come up with something like gamehenge
1: <laughs> <laughs> Oh no well, you, you're gonna talk about gamehenge in a bit Chris. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll
0: we'll, we'll talk about Gamehenge. Uh, maybe you should talk about it too, Arthur, because I never fully understood what the hell was going on. Uh, well, there,
1: I, I I I like your description of it. We'll get to that when we talk about Fish's brief history. All right. Yeah. So, myth number three: their lyrics sucked. Okay. Yes, early on, Fish didn't work too hard on their words. <laughs> they were they were too occupied gelling musically and honing their chops as an incomparable live band. Look no further than the track "David Bowie" from the nineteen eighty nine album "Junta," whose lyrics consist solely of the words "David Bowie" and "UB40" UB 40. 40. <laughs> yeah. repeated several times. Yep. When when that kind of simplicity wasn't the case. Trey Anastasio and his lyrical collaborator Tom Marshall, working much in the same way Jerry Garcia did with Robert Hunter, early on dealt in surrealist fantasia, whimsical psychedelic imagery and stories evoking postmodern fairy tales uh, with occasionally dark undertones. As stated earlier, that changed abruptly. With 1993's Rift album, with its resonant story, uh, the whole album really, uh, it's kind of a concept album of a, of a romantic relationship falling apart. The Anastasio-Marshall partnership continued to mature with some beautifully crafted and emotional lyrics that perfectly accompanied the band's maturing songcraft that characterized their 1989 to 2000 peak slash golden period that we'll cover in this episode.
0: Chris? Yeah. You get a sense. And I think it's probably, uh, Tom Marshall's personal maturity. Yeah. Uh, I, I get a sense. He was obviously, you know, just from just out of college to now, you know, in his thirties, probably family or whatever, you yeah. know, been through a couple of breakups. Uh, so I think that's evidence. Although I will say this, uh, uh, Gilopapyrus from, uh, A Picture of Nectar features the best use of the words recursive virus in rock and roll history. (laughs) So uh, at least at least there's that. Uh, But The Great Divide, actually, again, uh, that's a really strong lyric. And there's actually strong lyrics all through uh, Rift. I think that's where you start to get some of that uh, some of that maturity and some of that. I mean, even the title song. Uh, mm. You know, has has a lot of uh, depth uh, to it. So, yeah, you know, simple uh, depth. Um, and so, by the time you get the Billy Breeds, which you know, again I think is a their their monument, uh, you get lyrics uh, such as the one uh, one of the verses from the song Waste, which could coincidentally was uh, one of my friend's uh, first dance songs at his wedding, which is oh, wow. pretty pretty interesting choice. Uh, so uh, there's the first, uh, verse goes, don't want to be an actor pretending on the stage. Don't want to be a writer with my thoughts out on the page. Don't want to be a painter because everyone comes to look. Don't want to be anything where my life's an open book. Uh, yeah, that's a pretty nice, uh, uh distillation of keeping privacy and just, you know, settling down basically, you know, yeah. come waste, come waste your time with me. Uh, very right. sweet. Um, right. so So, yeah. So, I mean, that's like you said. So, yes, uh, that myth has about 30 percent truth, uh, but there's enough to debunk it and uh, make it crumble. So maybe if like you had the word myth, maybe like the second half of the of the letter M stands. (laughs) Yeah. But the rest of it. Yeah. No way. Yeah.
1: So next. Myth number four, they were of their 1990s time. Now, this is the laziest, dumbest criticism anyone can make. Yes, Fish's Halcyon days, especially creatively, were in the 1990s. So, fucking what? <laughs> Everything is of its time. Every, yeah, no piece shit. Of, every piece of music that's ever been made by any artist is of its time. What's the implication that Fish's music hasn't aged well? Yeah, well, tell that to Vampire Weekend one of America's biggest indie rock bands and avowed fish heads. Tell that to the New Jersey band Garcia Peoples, one of the most critically acclaimed up-and-coming jam bands that, despite their name, sound decidedly more like fish than the Grateful Dead. (laughs) And you know know what? Tell that to Built to Spill, who are known for their lengthy improvisational jams on stage. I know, I've seen them three times. (laughs) Uh, In any case... Aside from their music, the, o- the other major aspect of Fish's legacy is that is what they did for live performance. They not only updated and modernized the notion of hippie jam band audience culture for the end of the 20th century and beyond, most notably with their and their fans pioneering use of the internet, we'll get more into that later, But they created the template for the American version of multi-night festivals that well-known festivals such as uh, Coachella and Bonnaroo appropriated. After Fish worked the European festival circuit in 1992, they rightfully thought to themselves, why aren't we doing this in America? (laughs) They They shelled that idea until they grew popular enough. To exploit it, and that they did, staging one band, Fish being the one band, (laughs) multi night festivals that drew upwards of 80,000 people from the Clifford Ball in 1996 to the Great Went in 1997 to Lemon Wheel in 1998. Fish took the European Music Festival template and put their own unique spin on it, influencing countless count concert promoters in the United States in the process,
0: Chris. Yeah. That's, I mean, in terms of uh, putting them on a continuum uh, you, you got that right. Uh, They kind of put themselves on a continuum uh, that, you know, goes as far back as like the thirties and forties, if you think about it, but it, but it's that sort of sixties, seventies sort of classic rock and sort of the early jam and early Prague. Uh, You know, they, they, basically plugged themselves into that. And like you said, put their own spin on it, modernized it, you know, put in that funk and that jazz and, uh, you know, that cleverness uh, into it. And then if you look at it, like their legacy, we're defending their legacy carries on in the form of those one band festival shows and actually carries on to, you know, the cult uh, remains. I mean, they just, Mm. and they just played a smallish festival couple of days in Colorado. Mm. Um, and so they're still out there. They did that over uh, Labor Day weekend. And you got to remember too, that they early on and even, uh, on, uh, Billy Breeze and later years, uh, bluegrass barbershop quartet, they, uh, they had a weird thing for barbershop quartet touches, you know, like yeah. my, my, my sweet one, and there's a couple of those on, uh, down, uh, excuse me, hoist, uh, as well, so kind of that silly barbershop quartet thing. Uh, they, they like that. So, oh, and we definitely need to mention that if you think that they were of the nineties BS, uh, all you have to do is, uh, go back to Halloween of 1995. Uh, mm-hmm. I believe the first one was dark side of the moon.
1: Yeah. Yeah. They, they, they had a little mini tradition, uh, starting in 94 during, uh, on a Halloween show, They would play a musical costume and they would cover cover an entire album by an artist in their entirety. Halloween 94. They did the Beatles White Album every single track. 1995, The Who's Quadrophenia double album every single track
0: and then remain in light.
1: 96, Talking Heads Remain in Light. And then 1998 in uh, early November, they surprised people in Salt Lake City, Utah, when they did Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon.
0: Yeah, and then uh, about a decade later, uh, they did another one of these, and I think it was Dark Side of the Moon. Uh, Funny one about that is uh, that they a couple of ones on their short lists in that period uh, were MGMT's Oracular Spectacular. Yeah, and uh, uh, Loveless by My Bloody Valentine that right. Trey really wanted to see if he could figure out Kevin Shields' secrets. Yeah, and you know with uh, you know tuning all the amps, but uh, uh, Dark Side of the Moon one, <laughs> or yeah. excuse me, The Wall, The Wall. Well, no, yeah. I don't think
1: it was The Wall. I think it was uh, uh, in two thousand nine. They did Exile and Main Street by the Rolling Stones. Oh,
0: there you go. Okay, yeah. I knew I knew it was one of those. Yeah. Uh, So thank, thank you for the, uh, real time fact check. Uh, but it's the same, it's the same spirit. So, uh, Yeah. yeah, they, they really, like you said, the musical costume, uh, they were not of the, they were not blind melon.
1: Right. Absolutely. All right. Myth number five and the final myth that their endless live jams were boring. Now, starting at the end of the 1990s, fish's live jams did get boring. Guitarist and band leader Trey Anastasio's escalating drug addiction and the band's sapping live energy and disenchantment due to their growing fan base's sudden inclusion of aggressive frat boy types and non-music-loving druggies led to either long, slow, boring reggae or long, slow, boring funk jams. Either way, long, slow, and boring. And this pattern continued with some exceptions until their first hiatus in 2000 and their breakup in 2004. I can personally attest to this after seeing Fish in Long Island uh, in 1999. It completely put me off Fish for a long time after that. However, hmm. from the solidification of the band's core four lineup in the mid 1980s until about 1997, Fish were an incendiary live act and a verifiable force of nature on stage. In fact, what separated Fish from the Grateful Dead in the early 1990s, when Fish started to become prominent, was the sheer energy and visceral power of their live shows. Yeah, kind of like the Dead, but with Rolling Stone swagger, Led Zeppelin forcefulness, bravado from The Who, and an accessible and endearing funkiness borrowed from Talking Heads, admittedly one of Anastasio's favorite bands. Sure. The, the improvisations themselves were anything but slow and boring. The nearly telepathic connection that the members of Fish had amongst themselves, honed from endless hours of practice jam sessions that dwarfed the running time of their live shows, led their improvised jams to have a coherent, almost coordinated and constructed feeling to them. The best of which leading to emotional, cathartic crescendos powered by Anastasio's emotional guitar outbursts, Paige McConnell's jazz-based piano flourishes, Mike Gordon's fluid yet lyrical bass lines, and drummer John Fishman's understated way of holding down polyrhythms. Chris uh,
0: yeah uh one thing you should mention is that uh, a, a huge differentiator was the light show.
1: Yeah. Uh, the, yeah. The
0: lighting at fish shows were amazing and they yeah. also the use of fog uh yeah. and and props. Uh they yeah. were pretty good prop band too so that you know, that their shows were uh uh, were both awesome and at times silly. Uh, yeah. I actually, since you only saw them once in 1999, I saw them at least a half a dozen times. It's either six mm-hmm. or seven times. The first one being in July of 1994 at the Saratoga Performing Arts Center in Saratoga, New York. One of the best shows I've ever seen. It was, it was a tremendous experience. Like you said, visceral, it was powerful. You know, just seeing it and hearing it for the first time. I remember, they did one workout, and I want to say it was David Bowie, and it went on for 20 or 25 minutes. But this was they had a gimmick for a while where uh, bassist Mike Gordon and Anastasio would play while they were uh, bouncing on trampolines, little trampolines. You know, the the, the techies would come in, slip them, and then they would do that. And uh, in that one, they had um, fog so that you saw silhouettes of them mm. doing that while they're jamming and not missing a note. Uh, you, they have an underappreciated athleticism too. Those guys were in shape, uh, especially Mike Gordon, that, that guy was jacked. Um, so you have to remember it. So it's the show, uh, that really, uh, uh, matters in some respects. And then, yeah, then the, the music and the, the adventuresomeness of the, or that's a word, uh, their adventuresome, uh, uh, live or the jamming and the soloing, and the uh, the, the right turns of the unexpected curveballs. Uh, I uh, implore everyone listening to uh, do some homework. Uh, whether you're an old head like us or uh, you're a newbie, uh, go seek out live versions of songs like Harpua and Slave to the Traffic Light and Divided Sky uh, and David Bowie and uh, a number of, of, of others, like even A Week Up All Groove which is a Mike Gordon song has, uh, has some of this that, that goes on. So the, uh, the evidence is there. And like I said, they're still playing like first two is another one that was always awesome live. So yeah. there's that. And, you know, and don't just rely on, and if you want to, if you go streaming sites or you're reading discographies, don't just rely on their, uh, 1995, uh, live album. I think it's 1995, uh, a live one. Yeah. Uh, Which, yeah, it's a clever pun, a live one, Uh, as opposed to a live one. Uh, Yeah, it it doesn't capture the full sensory experience of it. You're only getting a slice. So uh, seek out the true uh, tapes. There's actually a box set that captures six out of the seven sets from the Clifford Ball. Uh, That's a good starting point as well. So. Yeah, uh, amazing live band, and it was as much about the show as it was the playing. Uh, no, these these weren't like
1: stationary guys noodling. On this episode, Chris and I explored the 1990s golden era of that greatest or second greatest of hippie jam bands, Fish. For the next episode, yours truly, curmudgeons will move on to a more contemporary band that. While not as big of a cult band as Fish, has in recent years emerged as one of the biggest cult indie rock bands in the US. OCs, formerly known as The OCs. They started out in the late noughties, spearheading the psychedelic neo garage rock movement that also gave us Ty Siegel and King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. But, In the last few years, their musical evolution has grown to take on progressive rock, jazz fusion, heavy metal, and hardcore punk. In the process, OCs have become one of America's most critically acclaimed bands with one of the most passionate, rabid cult followings around, all leading up to them selling out Colorado's Red Rocks Amphitheater last year. What is it about this band now that we are into prolific fish studio album that has true blue rock music fans album going uh, wild discussions? Will Tune in next the history, time to the Curmudgeon you know, Rock the Band as, band at that as time. we contemplate. Let's go into a, a curious case of, fish of OCs. before their first album. Everything going in up to uh, their debut album, Junta, in 1989. So, this will be a very brief history. I'll do the best I can to make it brief. There you go. Burlington, Vermont, 1983. Trey Anastasio, Mike Gordon, John Fishman, and second guitarist Jeff Holdsworth, formed at the University of Vermont in Burlington, played their first show of all covers at one of the campus cafeterias. Band temporarily breaks up after Anastasio is suspended from school for a prank involving sending a severed hand to a friend by airmail. Nice. Back in his hometown of Princeton, New Jersey, Anastasio reconnects with old friend, I think high school buddy, Tom Marshall, and together they write a slew of songs that would eventually form the basis of Fish's early material. Band gets back together in fall 1984, settle on the name Fish. Anastasio creates their now timeless logo, and they continue to play all around Vermont. 1985, after a gig in tiny Goddard College in Plainfield, Vermont, keyboardist Paige McConnell, a Goddard student who set up the show, convinces the band to let him join them. Rhythm guitarist Holdsworth quits in 1986 after becoming a born-again Christian. I guess smoking pot, tripping on mushrooms, and traveling with a Grateful Dead-loving hippie jam band didn't quite jibe with Holdsworth, Holdsworth's newfound values.
0: Well, either that or, or it, it jived with it a little too much, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah. 1986, the established core Fish Quartet relocate to Goddard College, an experimental school that allows students to set up their own curriculum. And they start to hone their chops and very slowly garner a loving cluster of fans. Also, Burlington Luthier, Luthier, by the way, is a craftsman of string instruments. Mm -hmm. Burlington Luthier Paul Languedoc designs custom instruments for Anastasio and Gordon and becomes their full-time sound engineer, a huge and very underrated ingredient to the band's sound And a position Languedoc has to this day, I believe. I could be wrong. 1987, the band relocate to Burlington and become the house band at Nectar's, a downtown restaurant and bar that would be Fish's home base for the next two years. During this time, Fish take Anastasio's college thesis project, a nine song prog rock song cycle called. The man who stepped into yesterday and develop a lengthy sci-fi fantasy based song cycle from it called Gamehenge, parts of which would become staples of their live repertoire for many years. Chris, can you tell us a bit about Gamehenge?
0: Yeah, Game, game is very, very strange. And again, I've never quite understood it uh, fully. But yes, like you said, it's definitely uh fantasy. And I think it was Anastasio's attempt to capture the magic and the spirit of Gentle Giant. And yes, and uh, Genesis, especially yes, there's a lot of that. But like you said, I think they only played it in its entirety a few times early on. Uh, but the one song that endured the most was Wilson. Yeah. Uh, and uh, which was great, you know, one of their great intros and one of the great sort of their uh, uh, sort of chant uh, openings. But yeah, this was basically what if spinal tap was good uh, <laughs> is, is basically what game Hinge is, And uh, yeah, it's uh, I think, you know, Trey in a lot of ways, uh, I get the sense that he, one of his inspirations as a music student or as early was to kind of say, I'll take like a maligned genre or a maligned idea and I will make it palatable and I will make it work in a way that impresses uh, non-musos. Uh, and so mm-hmm. I think that Game Hench kind of falls into that. And yeah. uh, it's, it's it's fun. It's it's jammy. It's obviously challenging. it's It's twisty bendy. And, uh, I mean, it's total, total, like, like, like pothead, you know, comic book goofy, uh, uh, kind of stuff, but, uh, yeah, we need to track that down. Uh, there's a few, there's a few performances of it. I know that they busted it out a couple of times in 1995, I believe it was one of those mid, uh, nineties tours. They, uh, they actually did that. That was kind of a feature of a couple, and it was one of those things that, Online, people were all excited. Is this going to be the night? Is this going to be the night? Is this going to be the night? And right, right. A couple of times it was, and so it's kind of like you know Willy Wonka and the and the magic ticket. Uh, so I imagine that must have been really really exciting. So yeah, that was that was the one of the first indications that that band was going to be different, different mm. but special.
1: So moving on to their history, 1988, the band start playing all around the New England area. House parties, clubs, dance clubs, community centers, you name it. Fish play their first shows outside of New England by doing a week long residence in Colorado. You can actually find bootlegs uh, and recordings of this show on Fish's website. 1989, the band wants to play the famous Paradise Rock Club in Boston. The owners don't want to book them because they're <laughs> unknown. What does the band do? They rent the club themselves, basically pay to play. Nice. And they sell out the venue with a caravan of fans from Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine flocking to the show. It's their breakthrough in the big city touring circuit. And soon enough, shows in New York, Philadelphia, and beyond beckoned. Fishhead culture is born. The band hires Chris Kuroda as their lighting director. Who is still there, by the way. Who is still definitely there, a position he still has. And you referenced, Chris, those uh, incredible fish light shows. His innovative light shows provide a crucial element to the live fish experience and would only get more impressive as the years go on. By the end of 1989, two key things happened. They have a profile written about them in Relics magazine. What is Relics? Relics was, I think, a magazine devoted to the Grateful Dead, Deadhead culture, and anything hippie jam band related. And the second thing, they self-produce and self-release their debut album, Junta, distributed via cassette at all their shows, which leads us to... Fish's debut album from 1989, Junta. Now, on this album, Fish's virtuosic collective musicianship is already on display with the band's unique funk jazz hybrid take on 1970s UK prog rock on multi section epics such as You Enjoy Myself, The Divided Sky, and David Bowie, all three of which are to this day considered signature Fish songs. These songs are all natural progressions uh, from Trey Anastasio's complex yet accessible Gamehenge song cycle, which we just discussed. NAC, normally a band self-producing and self-releasing an album solely on cassette and selling them at their club shows would elicit the equivalent of nothing. But by 1989, word of mouth about the band's epic live shows had spread throughout the new england region and was starting to infiltrate major east coast cities like new york boston and philadelphia chris yeah uh, to a point that you've made there's uh
0: only like one band i can think of that rode the wave of word of mouth and sort of grassroots pushing, you know, kind of proving yourself and getting yeah. people to talk about, it. there's only one band I can think of that's comparable and that's Metallica. Mm. Uh, in terms of you know, starting from obscurity and clubs and then the word gets out and then it goes to the next date, and then the next date, And then soon enough, you've got, like you said, uh, it, you rent out the club and all these people come. And so yeah. they're able to do that. And so uh, they're, organic progression is just extraordinary. Uh, an old editor of mine, Richard Gere, G E H R, uh, <laughs> uh, has written at least one book on fish and chronicles the sort of the, uh, the buildup of this culture of, of fish and how the phenomenon is, uh, pretty much unmatched. Um, really, uh, if it is matched, it would be like, again, the dead, or Metallica or a band like that. So that's one point to make. So Junta, uh, I want to share a quote from Trey Anastasio that really kind of gets at uh, Fish's motivation and MO and kind of explains how they come out of the gate with this record. So found this, uh, hey, you know, the magic of the internet. Uh, Trey says, quote, I always dreamed of writing in an orchestral context, but when you finish a piece, you want to hear it. So we played everything with fish. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: So, you know, the idea is it was basically all inclusive. The idea is, Mm. okay. So, you know, we want to be orchestral, we want to push ourselves, but let's do it within the limits or let's do it within the, uh, the bones or the formula of a fish within, you know, play to everybody's strengths. And that's what basically they do uh, on, on this record. Um, they definitely, they do come across as a band that cut their teeth in cafeterias and in clubs that only four or five people heard because yeah there's a, there's a freedom on this record and that kind of defines it. Like you said, you know, you mentioned the, uh, the three, you know, staples divided sky, David Bowie, you enjoy myself, especially you enjoy myself. That was the one that uh, tr- translated the best live. Uh, as we said too, so they also snuck in some real songs like fee. Um, And I've always been a fan of uh, David Bowie, by the way, the, uh, the break on that. Uh, I mentioned it last uh, episode when I, when we were talking about uh, From the Mars Hotel by the Dead and Phil Lesh's song, Unbroken Chain, about two minutes in, uh, three minutes in, you can hear fish being born. Mm -hmm. And so take that and zoom it into David Bowie and uh, uh, also Fee in some respects too, which is the album opener uh, really kind of jazzy, breezy uh, opener. And you get that sense that there is a direct lineage, uh, there, uh, really strong record, and like you said, they distributed it on cassettes. It was basically a demo, wasn't it?
1: It got better after that one, though. Yep. In 1990 with Lawn Boy. This is their first album for an actual record label. They recorded this in you know in a studio, and the record label was indie label Absolute Agogo. And this album saw the band expand on their early sound with liberal doses of hard funk as in Bathtub Gin, Uh, Frank Zappa inspired zaniness and oddball jazz funk arrangements, songs like Split Open and Melt, while continuing to produce platforms for classic instrumental jams, songs like Run Like an Antelope. And here, they're beginning to delve into sweetly melodic sing-along pop, Bouncing Around the Room, one of their best pop songs. All of these are among Fish's most iconic songs and some of the greatest songs in jam band history, up there with any of the classics by the Grateful Dead or the Allman Brothers Band. The aftermath of this album saw the band, already with their own management and booking agent at this time, tour beyond the East Coast and start to pitch their tent poles in various major cities and college campuses throughout the country. The nationalization of fish head culture begins here. Overall, I think this is one of the band's three best albums. Chris?
0: Yeah, it's certainly my favorite. It is one of the best. I mean, the material is off the charts. I mean, it's just yeah. it's just a, uh, a really... Th- this is their lightning in a bottle. I mean, it's just... Uh, everything just kind of hits the way it is. Even My Sweet One, which is kind of the goofy throwaway, is... Yeah so much fun and so well-placed. I mean, it, it's a very well-sequenced uh, record. Uh, again, my personal favorite record, um, I saw a review. Uh, I was kind of farting around looking to see if there were reviews and uh, you know, fan reviews or whatever, and I found one on Barnes & Noble. It's actually their uh, promo, promo copy. And uh, it, the, the guy, whoever wrote it at Barnes & Noble, calls it Fish's true statement of purpose. Mm. And I certainly agree. Uh, this is really where fish became fish in all caps. Uh, objectively, it is badly produced, but who cares? Uh, the spirit and energy are at a fever pitch again throughout the entire sequence. Uh, first and best appearance of bluegrass in the uh, in the fish catalog, uh, which would, you know a couple of times shows up in Rift a couple of times and shows up in Billy Breeds too, but this is their first one. And it actually, it combines bluegrass and barbershop quartet. So that's kind of clever. But I said, it's, we talked about it earlier. They had this funk sensibility. They had this rhythmic sensibility where Anastasio could just like ride those taut waves. Um, And they, they do it all over the place on this record and it's consistent and it's varied. Like the, the jam sections in Reba, much different than the jam sections and run like an antelope. And uh, the cult uh, lives on. Uh, here's an example: If you go to Etsy, which is the uh, you know the artisan uh, sort of consignment store online, uh, you can find a, a T-shirt that someone did. Uh, it's not the album cover, but it's a very clever. It says Lawn Boy, and you know, like some kid. It's almost like a Norman Rockwell painting of some kid uh, mowing the lawn, but it's clearly a fish thing. Uh, you can buy that for 20 bucks if you want. It's out nice. there. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, have a memento uh, for a, a wonderful, a wonderful record.
1: Their third album, A Picture of Nectar from 1992, is a major moment, not just the album itself, but what it entailed and everything going around the band at the time. What's going on? Let me explain. For all you kiddies out there who know very little about the beginnings of the internet, back in 1991, there was such a thing called Usenet. Yep. <laughs> it was for what eventually became America Online chat groups and later internet forums and the blogosphere. And it was basically the chief feature of this newfangled thing called, quote unquote, the internet. Well, Bob Dylan and the Grateful Dead were among the first established rock acts to have their own Usenet newsgroups. Fish, however, were arguably the first of the new generation bands to start their own Usenet newsgroup in 1991. And it was instrumental in the growth of their burgeoning, deadhead-like army of devoted fans. On the strength of this and their reputation as an awesome live band, A&R representative Sue Drew uh, from Electra Records was an early champion of Fish and signed them to major label Electra Records. The first Electra album that came out in early 92, A Picture of Nectar, was not only a major step forward in national recognition for the band, but also a further expansion of their musical palette. Noticeable Latin music and Caribbean rhythms started to penetrate the band's prog rock, funk, jazz, cocktail, such as the epic jam platform Stash and the instrumental The Landlady. The band also showed their ability to rock out confidently with riff-led monster rockers such as Chalk Dust Torture and Tweezer, the latter being one of the all-time great funk rock hybrids up there with anything Jeff Beck or Edgar Winter ever did. Now, the year 1992 also saw Fish be a festival touring machine, as well as a workhorse band opening for a variety of big-name artists, thereby expanding their already burgeoning Fishhead Head fan base. They were part of the inaugural Horde Festival, a traveling festival featuring like-minded jam bands, that saw Fish play alongside Blues Traveler, Widespread Panic, and the Spin Doctors. Yes, the Spin Doctors. Yeah,
0: Spin, <laughs> spin Doctors were actually good up until about 93, and then they went right. downhill.
1: Yeah. They did a US tour opening for, of all things, of all bands, violent femmes. They <laughs> they they did. They also did the European Summer Festival Circuit. And shortly after that they hopped on a brief European tour opening for, of all people, Lou Reed, who, contrary to one might expect, was highly complimentary toward the band. Later, they latched on as opening act for Santana's European tour, and they were so well-liked by Carlos Santana, who often invited members of Fish uh, to jam on stage with the Santana band during Santana's set, that they also opened for Santana in the US leg of the tour all of this within 1992
0: chris yeah amazing year for the band and actually that was the breakout of jam band thing strange yeah. but true and, and uh we mentioned this during the uh, the golden age of the uh, fourth golden age of rock series that we did a couple months back that fish was not a quote unquote headliner band uh yeah. on Horde, Uh there was a group of grouping of six of uh, those bands. Fish was not one of them. So they were on a significant number of those shows, which I believe at the time was only 12. Uh they they had a a, a northern leg and a southern leg. And a well, 12, 13, somewhere around there, but they were probably on half of those. So that's just some trivia. It's funny that you mentioned those uh shows and those tours that they were on. Can you imagine uh being a band having to follow fish, like imagine fish opening for you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and especially like the violent femmes who are, you know, basically one of those bands that just kind of sit or stand around and, you know, they're like, just like potted plants. I just, <laughs> I can't even imagine. I mean, the only one that, you know, the Trey could have said top that to who actually topped them was Santana, you know? Right. I mean, like, cause Santana live is just, I mean, that's another worldly experience too. Uh, As far as uh, a picture of Nectar, I think that's really the first time that they capture the energy of the live shows. Uh, You know, Junta, you know, obviously is a bedroom recording. Uh, Lawn Boy uh, has the music and, you know, and the soul and that energy, but it doesn't really have that. uh, What would you call it? That kinetic kind of boom, you know, that, that, that firework. This one does and straight out of the gate with Tweezer. And, uh, through, uh, some of the others, like even stash, like it has that energy, like, you know, stash was one of those ones that when you heard live, everybody clapped along at the clap along, yeah. uh, right, part. Right. but they even capture that energy in the clap along on record. And so I think that's the most impressive thing about it. Uh, like you said, this was kind of their breakout year in the sense of the word of mouth, uh, even had gotten to Western and central New York, uh, my, the first time I heard of fish was in 1992, beginning of my senior year, uh, a couple they were good guys, but they were the stoners, the resident stoners in the, uh, in the class. Uh, but they would, they went, uh, I think one of them, because they did a swing, like five dates through New York and Pennsylvania I actually followed them. And so I would hear about this and I knew they were coming, that they were a phenomenon. Uh, so uh, that, that's what you can say. Um, you know, being on Electra, obviously, uh, you know, gave them good wind, uh, so to speak. And
1: yeah, it, it, it got them hooked up with Santana and Lou Reed. <laughs> well, yeah. And uh, that's just
0: wild, by the way, Fish and Lou Reed. Uh, <laughs> well, I guess in terms of attitude, maybe it works. But
1: in you Park, park, park Pooterball a uh, music journalist wrote a sure. biography of Fish in 2009 and he mentioned on the uh, it was a very brief tour and uh, they opened like 4 or 5 dates for Lou Reed no more than that in Europe not in the states and uh, uh, they remember that there's a scene there where um Fish are about to go on stage and Lou goes out there and tells Trey and the other guys all right boys go out there and show them where rock and roll really what country rock and roll really came from
0: nice you know, so that, that, yeah. that that's like the ultimate compliment, uh, right yeah. there, uh, coming coming from Reed. Yeah, and uh, for what it's worth, Park Puderbaugh was one of the best uh, writers of his uh, generation. I remember uh, his stuff was really kind of uh, uh, influence uh, on me.
1: For the younger listeners out there who um, really aren't that familiar with how this was really like, you know, right after grunge, alternative, and indie, this was the next big 1990s rock phenomenon um what it was like okay the jam band hierarchy you had the a team the a team was basically fish and dave matthews band right yeah in terms of sales yeah yeah then you had the b team the b team was basically blues traveler and widespread panic right and then you had the c team the c team of more mediocre bands like the string cheese incident Mo and the Gorilla Biscuits. I actually kind of like the Gorilla Biscuits,
0: but anyway. Yeah, yeah, Gorilla Biscuits are fun. And hey, don't hate on Mo too much because what's his name? (laughs) Al Schneer is from Utica, which is the next town over from Syracuse.
1: Oh, okay then. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) uh, Homer, but go ahead. (laughs) But anyway, back to the A-team of Fish and Dave Matthews Band. What separated Fish from Dave Matthews Band, other than the fact that they were way better, um, Dave Matthews Band actually had hits. They had big commercial hits on the radio. They had MTV exposure that allowed them to grow their grassroots following and sell out arenas and big amphitheaters and whatnot. Fish did the same thing, That the same level of commercial success that Dave Matthews had without any hit singles, with barely any MTV mention, without any of that. Fish achieved what Dave Matthews banned, and even more so with those huge multi night festivals that, that, that attracted tens of thousands of people. Imagine if Fish actually had commercial hits and actually had hits on the radio and actually were on MTV. They would have been as big as Pink Floyd you know yeah
0: I, I kind of agree with that and hey uh the only diff- the, the main difference between fish and Dave Matthews is uh, Dave Matthews was a bona fide rock star uh he yeah. you know, we had he had the charisma and uh he had the uh, you know the voice and you know the stage presence and you know also uh, he had the the kind of the weird uh, combo of uh, saxophone and violin in the same yeah. game. So right. anyway, so there were like little touches that would be more engaging to a mainstream uh, audience. Mm-hmm. You know, John Popper, uh, he deserves more credit. He pretty much without him, we don't talk about the jam band scene. Cause he was kind of the, uh, I don't know if it, he, PR agent is too low. He was kind of the, um, kind of like the chief marketing officer, if you will, of the jam band <laughs> scene, uh, yeah. you know, because you know he was such a character, but he was out there saying, Hey, lots of good stuff going on. And here we have, uh, ha- have, uh, this. And so, uh, Popper being on the B team. Yes, they had, they were what a two hit wonder <laughs> there in 95, but, yeah. uh, uh, but they, f- they faded into the abyss. So right. uh, had to mention them real quick.
1: All right. So the next album in the fish chronology in this golden period of theirs, 1993 Rift, Fish's fourth album sees the album uh, sees the the band delve into darker, more serious territory with a concept album about a crumbling relationship. The band had hinted uh, at an evolving and maturing and increasingly hooky and catchy songcraft with Lawn Boy and a picture of nectar. With Rift, it came into full bloom, the turbocharged epic rocker maze features one of Trey Anastasio's most blistering guitar solos. Fast Enough For You, which you mentioned, Chris, is a moving, gorgeous ballad. The title track, Rift, opens the album like a galloping horse with breakneck momentum containing alternative and alternating vocals from Anastasio and keyboardist Paige McConnell that are so effective it makes one wonder why they never went back to that device uh, in the future. And... With fish.net run and operated by fans, the band became one of the first, if not the first, bands to foster their exploding underground popularity by utilizing the exploding popularity of the of the nascent internet. And by '93, the band and their fish head horde of fans were selling out two to three thousand capacity theaters throughout the country all without anything resembling a hit single on radio or MTV exposure something that would become a motif throughout the band's career overall and this is this happened during the rift era overall rift combined their increasingly exquisite songwriting powers with their already excellent musical chops into some of the band's most awe-inspiring and career-defining work. As far as great traditional rock albums of the 1990s go, non-indie grunge alternative division, Rift ranks right up there with anything the Black Crows or Los Lobos did.
0: Chris? Yeah, I, I pretty much agree with that. Uh, you know, the, there's a surprising sophistication to the production. And it's obviously it's, it's less jammy and less clever and sort of the energy in some spots, you know, like you said, uh, maize especially, and, uh, it's ice for a while was a, uh, was a concert favorite. Uh, this one was just, this was tasteful. Uh, this is tasteful, yeah. this tasteful fish that tasteful could be actually, ta- uh, that fish could actually be tasteful. Uh, and so really impressive record. Uh, I was big into it. That was, Maze, or excuse me, uh, Rift and the song Maze, that's what really got me hooked on the band. Yeah, uh, right. I was drawn in by Hoist, but it was Rift that really made me really excited. And for a couple of years, I was, a, I was, I guess you could call me a fish head uh, there. So uh, one point about this record, uh, the star of this record really is Paige McConnell. Uh, hmm. Two of the better vocal performances in the, if not the two best, in Fish's recorded catalog are on this record uh, when that's uh, rift and it's ice. Uh, r- so he uh, Im- impresses as a singer and the piano playing all throughout is just exquisite. And uh, the piano solos are just consistently in some, in a couple of songs, I think even on rift, the piano solos are more impressive than Anastasio's guitar. Um, yeah. Kind of a bold statement, but uh, no, this is definitely Paige McConnell's record.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, it's one of their very best and I think it's uh it's really like one of those roots rock underrated records and it's it's fish proving they could do like I said, they could do dark and serious and do it really well. They did a great job with it. And they they would come back to this in a couple of records later on down the line.
0: Arturo and I now both use the same microphone and what a darn good mic it is. If you've been with us for a while, you might notice we don't sound nearly as crappy or as clueless as we did in our first episode back there in January 2021. We're maturing, man. If you have any inkling to launch your own podcast, we recommend using the R's Technica 2100X USB. It's a high-quality cardidoid mic that helps limit ambient noise and echo and also gives a richness to your voice that you just won't get from a cheaper model and its USB attachment allows you to record conveniently using your laptop and software like Zencaster, the excellent program we use to record ourselves natively from Texas and South Korea. It's as close to a super souped up XLR system you can get for about a hundred bucks. Find this Ars Technica gem on Amazon, or perhaps ask a locally owned music store to send you in a more indie direction. Now, one note before we move on to uh, the next uh, set of uh, Fish albums. Arturo, you mentioned fish.net. Um Yes, it was one of the first of those fan affinity uh, sites. Pearl Jams broke out about the same time. I mean, this mm-hmm. is 1994. And so I spent a lot of time on the Pearl Jam site. And I remember that was being the fall of 94. So they definitely weren't on the early thing. But that is such a vibrant community and, uh, in case people didn't realize fish.net is thriving today and, you know, those of us that kind of pride ourselves as researchers or, you know, sort of folks that can go find the story, you know, the training and whether it's researcher, journalist, attorney, you know, English, uh, major, uh, You know, you would think that we would want to dig and take pride in finding books and, you know, old articles and, you know, studying geography and like, you know, do a a thesis on the University of Vermont and that kind of stuff. Fish.net is by far the best source for all that shit. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Well, pretty much every set list they ever did. uh, There are uh, fan written articles and there's uh, so much history and there's a lot of commentary and it is the... Still the gathering place. And so if you haven't been there in like 25 years, go there. It's still there and it's still uh, really awesome. And so, yes, they were a pioneer of the internet affinity uh, medium.
1: Speaking of the internet, 1994, the year the internet blew up and the year Fish kind of blew up themselves with their album Hoist. This was their most accessible, radio-friendly album to date, and it coincided with the unexpected explosion in their popularity. And the band, during this time, they jumped from theaters to mid-sized arenas, all, again, without a hit single or video. Yet, despite the seeming drift to the mainstream, the album is criminally underrated and contains some of the band's most enduring songs. Seriously, like I alluded to earlier, if we made a top 10 list of albums that should have been commercially huge, this one would be near the top. How did Big Rock Candy Mountain Arena sing-along songs like Down With a Disease, Julius, and Sample in a Jar not take off on rock radio? How did If I Could, a beautiful duet ballad with Allison Krauss, not become a huge pop hit? Electra seriously dropped the ball here with their marketing and promotion. Or maybe they just didn't bribe enough radio stations. Who knows? Instead, fucking Dave Matthews and his annoying voice. And for a brief time, sorry Chris, I'm not a Blues Traveler fan. Fat ass Republican voting John Popper and Blues Traveler crossed over to the pop charts instead. What a crock of shit. Hey, Nevertheless, I, I, <laughs> hey uh, one, one
0: clarification. I didn't say I was a blues traveler fan. I'm a fan of John Popper, the guy <laughs> and the harmonica player and the promoter and, yeah. you know, sort of the father of the scene, Uh right. blues traveler, the band, not so much. So right. I, I had to put that in.
1: Yeah. Nevertheless, even if hoist did not take off commercially, fish's career certainly did. And they became logical heirs to the grateful dead's crown as King of the jam bands. As I said before, 1994 is the year Fish graduated to large outdoor amphitheaters and mid-sized arenas and becoming one of the music industry's least likely success stories. Also, the aftermath of this album and the seemingly endless two-year tour that followed resulted in a live one, like you mentioned earlier, Chris. The live album from 1995, in my opinion, one of the greatest and most overlooked live albums of all time. What also happened in 1995? Jerry Garcia died from a heart attack at the age of 53, and his death meant all those younger generation deadheads crossed over the aisle to fish and became fish heads, resulting in fish, the, the cult of fish becoming even bigger. Chris?
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think that the the fact that uh, fish's rise and Garcia's demise uh, overlapped is you know, one of those act of God force majeure things, just have sort of a happy yeah. accident. Right. Uh, in right. terms of, like you said, inheriting, uh, you know, the deadheads. you know, where are we going to go now? Uh, well, that's one of the places that they were able to go. So I first get introduced to fish by hearing down with disease on yeah. the radio. Right. And they say, that's fish. And I'm like, wait a second, that's fish. Because Mm -hmm. in my head, you know, because of the jam band, uh, you know, a buzz that they had had, that they were way noodlier uh, than that. But here comes this really focused, uh, really awesome pop song. It's so fun. You know, it's got that bounce to it. Uh, It's got a a fun lyric and uh, one of Trey's best riffs. Uh, And like you said, it's hard to believe that from what I remember, uh, the label actually did make a quote unquote push for fish, I mean that's how they got on MTV. That's how they got on the radio. But and so this was kind of their introduction for people that weren't apt to work hard and still rely on the radio and still get fed what they're supposed to yeah. like. Uh, so there was a little bit of that. The fact that it didn't take off, like, like Down with Disease, should have been like a number one modern rocket for months. Uh, so which is pretty special. And and again, it's, it's this record's kind of forgotten. You know, I yeah. mean, when people think about fish, they think about albums. They probably think, uh, just my opinion, Billy Breeds first, then the live record, then Lawn Boy, mm-hmm. and then, you know, then the other scattered ones. I mean, this one kind of gets left out of the conversation for whatever strange reason. Uh Besides Down With Disease, I think a lot of people might know Down With Disease, but they probably don't know what album it's from. Yeah. But, <laughs> which is... The, the funny part is like three or four, if you were to make a list of their 15 best songs, mm. at least three of them are on this record.
1: Yeah, I know. Totally. Really underrated record.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And very proficient studio, like, like the Axilla Jam is like mm. to capture that much energy and that much sound and that much layering. You know, it's kind of like there's a lot going on there. And you know, with with the uh, the overdubbed vocals and you know the, the keyboards and all of that, that's just like, I mean, it makes me think of like Dr. Teeth from the Muppet Show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so uh, so that's just wonderful that they again maybe in a way they were kind of like the dead, well, not quite as de- uh, decadently, but kind of like the dead in their Axomaxoa Axomaxoa right. period, right? Uh, where it's like, oh, cool knobs. Uh, so yeah. And so no, it's pretty, pretty exciting record.
1: All right. The next one in the fish in this golden era of fish is probably their greatest album. Billy (laughs) breathes from 1996.
0: No, probably about it.
1: Yeah. As we previously discussed in our epic award winning series, the fourth golden age of rock in August, 1996, Fish put on a one band, two night festival called the Clifford Ball and drew 80,000 people to a decommissioned Air Force base in Plattsburgh, New York. The resounding, unexpected success of the festival meant the mainstream music media's eyes were finally on Fish. Also, with the death of Jerry Garcia and the demise of the Grateful Dead, Fish concerts became the destination for hippies, druggies, and anyone seeking the psychedelic experience. Combined with their already massive cult following, Fish were now playing big-time arenas usually reserved for the likes of Bruce Springsteen, R.E.M., and Pearl Jam. All of this led to eager anticipation for Fish's sixth album, Billy Breathes, and that anticipation was rewarded commercially. The album peaked at number seven on the Billboard album charts, as well as artistically, for it's arguably the band's finest moment on record. With its gorgeous acoustic guitar textures, the lush, dreamlike feel of the album evokes a beauty that they never really return to. Uh, it's also the absolute pinnacle of the band's songcraft, with the beautiful ballad Waste, like you alluded alluded to earlier, Chris, mm-hmm. the anthemic riff rocker free, the sultry, dreamy Billy Breathes, and the soaring epic Prince Caspian. The album's well-known producer, Steve Lillywhite, who had previously worked with Susie and the Banshees, U2, Morrissey, and Dave Matthews' band, called Billy Breathes the best stoner album since Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. Now I would not go that far. I but would not it either. A, it yeah. is a terrific stoner-friendly album, and quite and like you said, Chris, undoubtedly Fish's studio masterpiece.
0: Yeah, from uh, the little bit I can remember, and there's a reason I can't remember it. Uh, Lawn Boy is better uh, for for green test uh, satisfaction. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. uh, this is actually the sober record. This is the record that you listen to when you're you know wanting to mellow and sort of uh, even yourself out. Uh, yeah. Great record, um, really. Uh, th- it sounds gorgeous. Uh, they were, I think that you know, with Down with Disease and uh, Hoist, yeah, because that didn't hit the way they wanted. It, they probably went into there uh, with a chip on their shoulder. They knew that they had their moment. They knew that they were at their apex. And so, like yeah. you said, they did the Clifford Ball that summer. They did the Remain and Light thing uh, in uh, in six uh, in that uh, ninety six that fall. The Halloween show and uh, just a special year, and so I think they knew that this was their their best chance to build that legacy with non fishets, and they did it. Uh, they really did it. Um, Casp- Prince Caspian as an album closer is perfect. That's one of Trey's uh, greatest riffs, probably my favorite riff of his. I mean, that's just a a fantastic song uh, for years. Uh, I used Caspian as uh, the root of my password. I don't anymore. Mm-hmm. So sorry, folks, okay. you got to go uh, identity theft, somebody else. But, okay, uh, yeah. so that, that shows you what this kind of meant to me, just orally, you know, a U R a L L Y. And, uh, spiritually, that's what, uh, that song uh, meant to me. Uh, I think the, the title track is fantastic because that has some country mm-hmm. music, bluegrass, uh, sort of Appalachian influences, uh, to it too. Um, Free it is a wonderful uh, album opener. Character Zero, I always kind of mm. like. It's a little dopey, uh, yeah. but it's it's great. I mean, it, it's great dopey because of the energy of it, and uh, that's kind of pretty much like this is where Tom Marshall kind of grew up. But yeah. that was kind of like his last vestige of true goofiness mm. uh, in terms of the rhyme uh, scheme and the sort of the you know, the, the chorus, which is like. Uh, there must've been a guy named he that they either really liked or they really hated. Uh, so <laughs> so um, yeah. And, and again, you know, the fact that they were able to recruit Steve Lillywhite uh, shows the kind of respect that they had in the music industry at that point. Yeah. Right. And they, and uh, also that they had arrived at, if not a level budget, at least like B plus a minus budget level. Right. Right. And so uh, that's, that's pretty special. So kind of their you know I mean a lot of the critics back then and I guess it still holds it's their American beauty it's yeah, where it they is. It it's really kind of is. it's kind of where they kind of proved themselves as being sort of uh not just musical wonderkins but like soulful you know it's like you know Trey you know it wasn't all about you know the the frets you know yeah. and the pedals yeah. that he had actually yeah you know, that the soul was there and here right. is uh where they proved it and like we said uh this was the peak The absolute peak, the Billy Breeds, uh, Clifford Ball, uh, Halloween show uh, trio or triad. And inevitably, when you're at the peak, nowhere to go but down. And unfortunately, this is kind of where that starts.
1: Yeah. And this starts with their seventh album from 1998, The Story of the Ghost." Alas, as you said, Chris, all great streaks come to an end. And Fish hit a bit of a snag with this album. Curiously, the meticulous and careful craft of Billy Breathes after that, Fish responded with an underwhelming album culled from pieces of improvisational jams in the studio. The result is uneven, uninspired, and frankly really disappointing. It seemed like the band turned a corner with Billy Breathes. And with the story of the ghost, Fish treaded backwards. Everything that critics of Fish criticized him for aimless jamming, weak songwriting, shitty vocals, corny lyrics they were all on display here. Fortunately, the album didn't derail the band's momentum. By this time, enormous multi night festivals drawing tens of thousands of people were a yearly occurrence for the band as they were now genuinely. One of the most popular bands and biggest concert draws in America. Nevertheless, there are some golden nuggets on this album. You have the time signature shifting prog rock epic Gaiuti, which dated back a few years earlier. It wasn't really a new track. Right. Yeah, that's a fun um, song. Yep. The delectable pop rock of Water in the Sky and the polyrhythmic excursion of limb by limb. So it's not all crap, but it's kind of mostly crap. Chris?
0: Yeah. It's about one third. Okay. Real uh, one third. Good two thirds crap. I also like birds of a feather. Uh, I think, mm-hmm. I think that's got an energy to it, but yeah, no. So there's a couple of things about this record. Like you said, I think that, you know, that's sort of, you know, nowhere to, you know, how do we top that? Well, they came in and there was probably some burnout starting to happen here yep. that they, yeah, for sure. they, they had been nonstop at it since 1984, 1985 with yeah. very little hiatus. And so I think that starts to show. And then I think it's pretty obvious. And, and Trey has even said it that, uh, around this time, that's where the freebasing on the bus caught up with him. Uh, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he developed uh, multiple, uh, addictions to substances. And I think that that much like it happened to the dead in the, mm. the, the sort of the mid, you know, like the post blues for Allah period. And then, uh, again, in you know, the end of their, run. It, it definitely had an effect on their output. Uh, and so, you know, less prolific, like you said, this is where they started to recycle, uh, some, some live favorites and stuff that they had been workshopping for years. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the jams, and I'm going to tell a story in a minute about how bad it had gotten here. Mm-hmm. Uh, the jams were now insipid and uninspired. Um, you know, they started covering boogie on reggae woman around this time and, Great song, great cover. It was fun. The jams to it, no, no. They should have just they should have kept it uh clean and avoided the jams because it was base base driven slop. Uh, they kind of relied on I think Mike Gordon kind of was more the driver of the jams for 98, 99, nine, two thousand. Yeah. Which is too bad. Uh yeah. <laughs> stick
1: to stick to bluegrass, Mike.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh so here's my story. So I can't remember what they call it. I don't even think it had a name at this point. The fourth of those big air force or airport air base, uh, shows in 1999 was a little North of my hometown, uh, Fulton, New York, about an hour. And there's a little Volney airport, I believe it's called, uh, little airport. And, but it was enough to get again, 75, 80,000 people, um, and so I'm working for this outfit called Sonic Net at the time, which I think had just been bought by MTV. And I had been bugging uh, their public- officious publicists for an interview with uh, the band, because I thought that that was important at that point, and just to see where they're at and what's next, and just sort of, uh, you know, price of success kind of thing. And they kept, you know, kicking it down the road to the point where I think they got annoyed with me. Mm-hmm. So anyway, uh, so. I was supposed to go up there and I'll try to keep this relatively short. So I was going to go up there. I thought I was going to get an interview with at least, uh, Anastasio and Gordon. Uh, and you know, you get the pass into the show. Okay. So getting up there is a disaster because at that point I'm going to bus to Syracuse and borrow my father's car. Uh, bus breaks down. Mm. Uh, and you know, driver must spend like twenty three, twenty four, and so he's bitching until we get a for about an hour, like nonstop, and uh, until we get another bus. That was the hottest goddamn month of my life. It must have Jeez. been if it was ninety nine outside. It was one hundred and ten in the bus. Uh, get to Syracuse finally at like twelve thirty in the morning. Uh, wake up the next morning. Turns out that my uh. Dad, my father, and my stepmother are in a protracted fight. Uh, (laughs) Won't divulge details, but they're in a nasty uh, way at that point. So, uh, well, great. I come right into this. Borrow dad's car, drive up to the airport, uh, go to check in. Now, remember, it's about 100 degrees and you're on an airbase or you're on an airport strip, which means it's like 115 down there, right? Mm. Go to check in. I check in, find out I'm not getting the interview. Go back to the car. Lock the keys in the car. <laughs> and so I'm reporting this and they're saying, they keep telling me that, uh, you know, obviously it's a show. We'll get security out there as soon as we can to Jimmy your car. And so yeah. I'm out there. I don't want to go anywhere. You know, I'm a dumb 23 year old kid at the time. Well, this goes on for three hours in the scorching heat with no cover. I was wearing a hat. Uh, didn't work so well. I was wearing like a fisherman's hat. It didn't work as well as it should have. Uh, Had no water. And the way I finally got in the car was that these two members of their crew came out to basically smoke the equivalent of a joint in a paper bag. It was like, I don't know what the hell they were using, but it was like some paper container that was like about seven inches, eight inches long, maybe even longer than that. You know, a couple of, you know, stereotypical guys. I finally asked them to see if they can Jimmy me. And one of them happened to have like a, coat hanger type thing or some sort of jimmy thing on them. And finally get in the car. Well, by this point, I am now dehydrated. I know that now because I'm getting woozy and I'm getting, you know, fuzz in the eyes. I'm I'm feeling the heat, all that. I'm supposed to meet up with a couple friends of mine too. And at one point, I have to take a really, really bad piss and I can't find a bathroom. And so I bought a bottle of water, you know, drank a little bit of the water, emptied it out, pissed in the bottle. Oh and, God. And the piss was like orange Gatorade. And oh. so, yeah. And I'm, I'm only mentioning this because, uh, and, uh, Brian Hyatt of Rolling Stone, uh, will appreciate this because the next week, the next weekend I covered Woodstock 99. Oh, that was a great month. Uh, <laughs> but I did that. I finally found my buddies. Now at this point they were starting to attract, I mean, the drugs, like anything, the drugs were actually probably starting to change. And so, and it was too hot and you, and 15 year old tweakers and a a thing out in the tent. So it it went from being like sort of this organic community to now like 15 year old tweakers, uh, shooting off fireworks. One of which went right into the side of my friend Stu's tent. (laughs) (laughs) We're lucky it didn't burn up. Uh, and so, uh, get through it. it. It's not a good show. It's six sets. Uh, great version of Gaiaute. That was the highlight on the, the second day. Um, I get home, I write, this, I write the article. It was a good article. Um, and you know, by the end of the show, I didn't give a hoot. And uh, so I just kind of enjoyed the last setup by the, the soundboard. I just kind of mm. let loose. And of course, that got back to the publicists. Um, <laughs> so I got a little bit of flack from the editors. Well, the the main gift that came on uh, that kept on giving. Oh, and I had to drop off the car while my folks were still in an argument, (laughs) joy, Uh, is that I had what I now realize was probably a second degree sunburn on the back of my neck, as in like (laughs) neon purple uh, with flaking skin and probably some pustule kind of thing going on. Oh, God. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I I think I, I creamed it and I think I bandaged it for a couple of days, but... Then I had to cover Woodstock with this thing unexposed and like legitimately, like at least Brian and maybe my editor, they were like legitimately concerned. I mean, (laughs) I I worked, nobody stopped me. I mean, it was chaotic. I mean, I did 17 stories in four days and we were just pumping and, you know, Woodstock 99, you know, was a clusterfuck. Uh, Anyway. And so I probably almost died twice <laughs> and it was because of Fish's, sh- uh, Fish's shittiest of those uh, airstrip shows. Ugh. So there you go.
1: What we do for rock and roll? <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: absolutely. Top, top that, motherfucker.
1: Speaking of that, this will segue into our final album of Fish's golden period, and this is actually has a positive ring to it. Thank you. What we, what we do for rock and roll. On New Year's Eve 1999, to celebrate the millennium, Fish played another one of their massive two-night festival shows, this time at the big Seminole Indian – we shouldn't say Indian anymore. It's a Native, Native American. American. Ever Reservation in the Florida Everglades. Except this one had a twist. Over 75,000 people got to see the band take the stage at 11.35 p.m., and continued to play almost eight hours until sunrise on January 1st. It was an astounding feat of endurance, performance stamina, and yes, musical improvisation that not only went down in fish lore, but is perhaps one of the greatest concert achievements in music history.
0: Oh yeah, no doubt. No doubt. And and actually, Anastasio at this point, I guess, was back to, from what I understand, I've heard the tapes, he actually played really well.
1: Yeah, he he actually got himself a bit clean and sober for this, um, and it was yeah, perhaps, and it was with this as the backdrop that later in spring 2000, Fish released Farmhouse, and which is I think at this point their eighth album. After the underproduced, meandering mediocrity of the story of the Ghost, Trey Anastasio took command for the next album. He wrote or co-wrote every song on the album and. While the credits gave him co-production credit with Bryce Goggins, by all accounts, Anastasio commandeered the studio for the recording of the record, making this an Anastasio solo album in all but name. And you know what? The record is better off for it. Farmhouse is not only a successful rebound after the disappointment of the story of the ghost, it's one of Fish's most cohesive, consistent, well-produced, clear-sounding albums consisting of several songs that the band had been playing live since the mid-1990s. The title track is an anthemic sing-along that quotes the melody from Bob Marley's No Woman, No Cry. Bug is a rousing stormer of a track with Tom Marshall's lyrics gleefully celebrating his atheism. How about that? Hmm. Uh, Heavy Things is the closest thing Fish ever had to a hit single hitting number two on billboards adult alternative tracks chart and it's easy to see why with its insanely catchy pop rock bounce this is not fish's best album but honestly it's probably my personal favorite and without a doubt their final great studio album
0: Chris, oh, oh yeah, this album pops uh, all the way through. It, you know, it's not perfect, but it pops, and it's, it's. I think it's like the most, even more than Billy Breeds. It's like right there, immediately yeah. you know, jumping out of the speakers. Like you said, "Heavy Thing's is a great song. Farmhouse, which they've been playing for years, that's one thing to, to note that there's several songs on here that they that were very well road tested. And so this wasn't a complete go in the studio or go off on your corners and write all new songs kind of album. Yeah. It was kind of one, at that point, maybe they were burned out it was like, let's keep going and we'll make a good record, but maybe we'll just put some old stuff in here. Uh, I like, I think the end of the record is very strong uh, with uh, Sand and First Tube. Uh, You know, First Tube, I think was one that, uh, that was a new song. I don't think that they had uh, road tested that one yet. So showed that they could still do it. Um, but, you know, obviously there was a lot more going on than we realized. Because you got to remember at this time, as far as I know, Paige McConnell's living in New York City. Uh, Trey is back in Princeton. Um, and I think one one of those guys remained in Vermont. And so now they're actually like what happens to a lot of bands, like R.E.M. this happened with. Now you have a diaspora. That they're not, they're not like four guys against the world. And so they're, they're growing up. uh, They're probably burned out, maybe a little sick of each other. You know, like I said, you know, Trey had his personal uh, issues. And so it's kind of uh, fascinating that they put out an album this strong and this marketable. Right. Like less than six months before they uh, called it, called it a day or they went on Uh, went on hiatus Hiatus. yeah Yeah, and i remember that reading that was like october or november of 2000 neil strauss strauss uh wrote a song or wrote a song wrote a an article uh in the new york times and it stunned me i was like are you kidding because like you know i thought that that was like you said they had come up with the kind of thing where they could go on forever and all of a sudden now it's uh now it's stopping uh another funny uh quick personal story so uh i wrote a review of this um album for MTV.com, you know, in my twenties, I was cool. Uh, and so, um, this thing got plagiarized word for word by some 22 year old kid just out of college in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Uh, only reason I found out about it was because there was a guy that worked at uh, SonicNet for me, one of the techie guys who was from Scranton. And you know, was friends, you know, he actually worked at that alt weekly, uh, or intern there. And so he caught beat of this and like, you know, most plagiarizers are at least smart enough to mix it up and have some plausible deniability. Uh this mm-hmm. guy like literally cut and paste work word <laughs> for word and just used my headline or used Billy's headline, you know, and uh built my editor. And so uh I just thought that was funny and like Maybe I should be flattered, but if he had made some effort, I would have let it go. But I, I wrote a very inspired, kind of acidy-toned uh, uh, email to the editor, and the guy was like, he was profusely apologetic, you know. And fi- <laughs> fire, he, he, he emails me and he says, "Can you know you send me yours? Send him mine." Comes back on five minutes later. Yeah, I just fired him. Uh, yeah. So whatever. So that was Chris, Chris imitation,
1: imitation is the finest form of flattery.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, but, but at least, you know, like, come on, at least, you know, I mean, gold buttons versus black buttons, you know, mix it up a (laughs) little bit, you know? So, okay. Anyway, I digress. And so, uh, yeah, the end of the, the, the end of the road of the classic period for fish was actually a really weird time in my life. So that's why this, we said this album or this episode was personal. Uh, For me, it's the end that's more personal than the beginning, for sure.
1: Well, let us add a postscript to this golden period of fish that really ends in 2000. And let me add what really should be added and should be said about what happened to the band afterward. So, like we said, and like you alluded to, Chris, the band continued touring until October 2000 before going on an indefinite hiatus. And they sure needed it. (laughs) They Mm -hmm. had been going hard with recording and touring nonstop since the late 1980s. And by the end of the 1990s, as mentioned earlier, their live shows started to suffer. Whether it was overall fatigue, the band members getting sick of each other, or Trey Anastasio's worsening drug addiction, the band's onstage performances were becoming lethargic and predictable something no one would have ever accused Fish of being earlier in the decade.
0: Yeah, and and, and the crowd was becoming actually kind of dangerous. It, it, yep. it, it wasn't the same crowd.
1: Exactly. The demographic change in their audience became startling and unfortunate as well. Free-spirited, harmless hippies with their pot, mushrooms, LSD, ecstasy, drug cocktail were still in abundance, but like the Grateful Dead before them, A darker element started to permeate fish head culture. You had a combination of macho, aggressive frat boy types and their boozing and an underworld drug dealer element peddling harder drugs such as heroin, crystal meth and crack that infiltrated both the parking lots and inside the arenas, making fish concerts no longer the cuddly, happy-go-lucky experience they used to be um the band ended their hiatus in late 2002 and while they were still able to string together some strong performances throughout the 2003 tour the band seemingly broke up for good in 2004 after a horrible performance at their coventry festival in vermont anastasio's drug issues were really causing problems within the band and judging from their exceedingly crappy Recent couple of albums, 2002's Round Room and 2004's Undermined, they were creatively spent. After being busted for drug possession in 2006, Anastasio spent most of 2007 undergoing drug rehabilitation. Lo and behold, Fish reunited in 2009. While no longer touring at the breakneck pace they used to work uh, under during their 1990s heyday, To this day, with the exception of the year they took off in 2020 due to the COVID-19 pandemic, they still tour on a moderate schedule of roughly 50 shows per year. Now, you out there listening, you may be wondering, why haven't we analyzed any of Fish's post-2000 studio output? There's a reason for that. In yours truly, curmudgeon's personal opinions, Those albums simply suck. (laughs) I already referred to the albums Round Room and Undermined as being pretty shitty, and frankly, the same could be said for the below-subpar quality of 2009's Joy, 2014's Fuego, and 2016's Big Boat. Hey, after all, one of the four curmudgeonly tenets of this podcast is every band has a shelf life, and no one is good forever.
0: Right. And, and uh, yeah. Yeah. The 2009 record's actually pretty good. Um, really?
1: I, I think yeah. it kind of sucks. <laughs> all, th- all things
0: considered, well, best of the four, I guess not saying much, but they got a couple, they got like one or two, like at least one song in mild rotation that was pretty successful on sort of whatever was left of modern rock radio uh, at, right. the, at the time. So they had that. Most interesting thing anybody did uh, post 2000 uh, in terms of Fish and Fish members Oysterhead. Ah uh, yes. Gotta give, gotta give a quick shout out to Oysterhead. This is a super group with Anastasio, uh, Les Claypool, the bassist from Primus, and Stuart Copeland from Police. Uh, yes, the police. You, yes, you heard that right. Um, like the <laughs> like the three strangest, like kind of like you know, like wackiest genius players in the same band. And yeah, it was a wacky uh madly sort of oddly mad genius kind of record uh it was a fun record to like walk around to uh and still kind of a fun treadmill record um for sure and so uh i encourage folks to go find that record
1: let me i want to put a ribbon on this with some positivity sure uh by the time the 2010s rolled around fish had become a legacy act you go to their shows to experience the carnival-like atmosphere of fish head culture. Hopefully, you'll score some good drugs and listen to a band of virtuoso veterans. Hopefully, add some new flavor to their old classic songs with improvisational mastery. The key word here, folks, and all our friends out there, is legacy. Yes. For a band that started out heavily indebted to their forebears, particularly the Grateful Dead and 1970s prog rock bands like Yes and Genesis, Frank Zappa, Santana they undoubtedly carved their own place in rock history with their own unique spin on hippie jam band rock. Whether it's on satellite radio or a Spotify playlist, you know a song is by Fish when you hear it. They developed their own distinct sound with a dizzyingly eclectic palette of sounds and genres that incorporated jazz, funk, Latin music, progressive rock, art rock, Country, folk, blues, and even traces of electronica in their jams from their naughties shows. They reinvented the traveling hippie jam band circuit for a new century. They not only revived the notion of the multi-night music festival in America, but they reinvented it and set a template that influenced generations of music fans and concert promoters. It doesn't matter if you dislike Fish's brand of music. They fucking matter. And they made an indelible impact, not just on the music scene, but on American culture as a whole. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame beckons them, or at
0: least it should. At least it should. Yes, And with that, we've come to the end of our latest uh, foray uh, into uh, rock and roll's uh, history and continuing our masterful uh, place uh, in the greater universe. Uh, The Curmudgeon Rock Report uh, belongs to you. Uh, You can find us or send us a message at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. Uh, you can also join our uh, curmudgeonly community on Facebook, uh, Facebook.com/curmudgeonly, and yeah, we're we're back and active on Twitter, so you can uh, find us there and, and and hit us up. And you know, we we have some things percolating. Uh, also, should mention, we're going to have a Spotify playlist uh, attached uh, to this episode uh, as well. Uh, we'll probably just dump all the albums we talked about in there and. Let you uh, do some exploring.
1: So studio studio tracks, not the twenty minute jam versions
0: correct, from the live correct. shows. The studio yeah, don't yeah, fear not, fear not. We won't we won't torture you like that. And so that said Arturo, uh, what's next up for our forty-fourth uh, episode in the history of the show?
1: We are going to tackle a little more a slightly more contemporary band. Uh, and this band started in the noughties, in the mid to late noughties. And right now, as we speak, they are one of the mo- one of the biggest indie cult bands in America. They're, they're not quite an arena band, but they have a huge online fan base on blogs and social media. They're called, well, they used to be called VOCs. Now they're just called OCs. They came into prominence about a decade ago with that uh, garage psychedelic rock band revival that included Ty Siegel and King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. We've talked a lot about those two artists, but we haven't really talked a lot about the OCs or just OCs. And they really deserve an episode to themselves because they have a dense discography that warrants some filtering. And there's some great music in there that explains why they have such a huge, big cult following right now, and that's a band that deserves some consideration. They're modernish <laughs> because their their leader John Dwyer is actually two years older than us. So there if you're you older than if you're older than us, you're old. Yeah, at this point, yeah, <laughs> you're pretty old. Yeah, that,
0: tell that to my back; it'll agree.